You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Curtain up theater people and welcome to your program is your ticket. My name is Sean Chandler and I'll be your host. Your program is your ticket. It's a discussion of smaller theater works and the people and organizations that make it happen. As many of you know, your program is your ticket as a helpful system where your program is literally your ticket to get into the theater and smaller or intimate productions. It's these works we like to highlight and it's our goal on this show to feature as many of these productions as possible while still discussing the biggies. Today's show is the continuation of a new series called Act Two Places. I'm bringing on a series of guests to discuss how COVID-19 affected them and their organizations. As all of you know, we've been hit hard with a complete, hopefully temporary, change of lifestyle and business systems during this pandemic, and theater wasn't spared, definitely not. In fact, theater has undergone one of its biggest shifts, if not the biggest shift in the history of modern theater. This series gives theater folks an opportunity to discuss the effects of this shift on them and their organizations. My guests on today's show are playwright Gina Femia and actor, artistic director Heather Cunningham. Both artists are New York-based, both are multiple award winners, and both are so talented. Now, back in 2018, Gina wrote a play called We Are a Masterpiece, which was produced by Heather's production company, Retro Productions. Heather also played the lead character. I saw it. I loved it. It was so gripping and beautiful and, um, and, and touched me quite a bit. I, thought, I just thought it was amazing. Now, We Are a Masterpiece is about the AIDS pandemic, and I thought that it would be interesting to bring them on to discuss their thoughts on similarities and differences in reference to the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as how they're holding up as artists. So let's bring them on. Hi, Gina and Heather. And welcome to your program is your ticket. Hi. I should say, welcome back, Heather. <laughs> that was Heather. such a fun night. I'm, glad, I'm really glad to be here again. Oh, good, good. Yeah, um, I think I, uh, we interviewed, I interviewed you with Shay Gines mm-hmm. um, uh, about the New York Innovative Theater Awards and Retro Productions. It was so cool. And so, um, and Shay just recently got married. So congratulations. Yes. All right, let's start by having you tell our audience a little bit about your individual background. Heather, why don't you go ahead and go first? Uh, Okay. I am um, (laughs) an actor and a producer uh, for Retro Productions. I'm the artistic director. Retro is an indie theater company here in New York City, and um, we produce 20th century period pieces. Um. I think that sums me up pretty well. Okay. All right. Gina. 
Um, I'm a playwright and a, a solo performer, and I am New York-based, uh, specifically Brooklyn-based, which is also where I am born, raised, still reside forever. And so a lot of my plays take place in uh, Brooklyn, and uh, that's a, that's about it for me, too. Wow, cool. Uh, give us an example of another play that you uh, have written. Um, sure. Sure. I, I've written over 30 plays, um, full length specifically. So <laughs> that's a little bit of a. Thing. She looks like she's about like 22 years old. So, so good, about, good decade more than that. <laughs> really good genes. Yes. Yeah. My mom looks great. Um, but I guess one of the, the plays that I'll mention is one that, um, Really, I think, well, it didn't specifically bring Heather and I together, but I know that Heather is a big fan of a play called The Violet Sisters, um, which I wrote uh, a few years ago. It's, it's a two-hander, two female uh, characters, sisters, um, that kind of meet up in the aftermath of a father's death during Hurricane Sandy, which is an event that I did live through, um, you know, in 2012. So I think that's that's... A good example of a play that, you know, it's about sisters, it's about trauma, family trauma cycles, and um, also just like takes place in Brooklyn. And, you know, it's something that producers have been like, well, who cares about Hurricane Sandy? Because to them, it's like such a blip of a historic event. But Mm -hmm. in my plays, I feel like every, as long as the characters are going through, it's a historic event for them. So that's what makes me eager to tell those kinds of stories. I thought Hurricane Sandy was brutal. Now, I didn't live here at the time. I moved here, David and my husband David and I moved here in 2015. But because I loved New York so much, I used to have all of the web webcams on like my iPad and my computer. So I was continually pulling up various webcams and it was wicked. It was really bad. I, um, I, I lived, I'm actually, one of the things that Gina and I have in common is that we're both from Brooklyn and it's one of the things that we bonded over very early in, um, after meeting each other. Um, I was able to go out and do some, um, cleanup after Hurricane Sandy, um, in a couple of different places, but the most memorable and I think important place that I went was Coney Island and the water line was at five feet in places, um, it was, it was really intense. Um, the, the beach had come up onto the boardwalk and the, the water and the trash and everything. Um, you know, it was, uh, and Coney Island, of course, and I know that Gina feels similarly, and I don't know if it's just because we're from Brooklyn or if it's because we're these kind of people, but Coney Island has a special place, right? In our mm-hmm. hearts. So yeah. it's, um, it was it was a particularly um, brutal, and I'm really glad I went. But yeah, it was that was I I would felt broken for days after that, both physically and emotionally. Yeah, it it was thrashed Coney Island from what I recall, like the whole that whole like boardwalk area, and yeah, yeah. maybe not as bad as the Rock. Like I think the Rockaways actually got the worst of of that compared to Coney Island, but. Um, by the time I made it to the Rockaways to do any volunteering, it was, um, we weren't at that point, we weren't pulling trash up at the same, in the same way. You know, Mm -hmm. I was at Coney Island. I was at, I was in Coney Island 
closer to the storm than I was at in the Rockaways. Mm. I mean, Rockaways looked like a war zone even when I got there, but it was a different kind of volunteering that I was doing. So we actually did our wedding photos there in 2018. So after Mm -hmm. the church, we went to Coney Island and was walking along the boardwalk in a huge wedding dress. (laughs) And it was great. Um, So, yeah, and we actually, our our anniversary was just in October, our two-year wedding anniversary. So we've really been relegated to Bensonhurst, um, which is where we live. And, you know, we've really not traveled on the train. We're both, like, unemployed well, I'm a freelancer and my husband's been unemployed, but we did get on with, with shields to go to Coney Island on our anniversary so we could like walk on the boardwalk. So well really important. Well, congratulations <laughs> on your two year anniversary. That's great. Thank you. That's 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 just really wonderful. Um but yeah, COVID has really like like taken everybody's social life apart again. Not a huge, not the biggest priority, but still, I think we're all social people and we all, we all definitely need to, to connect. Gina, can you please tell us uh, about We Are a Masterpiece? Yes, absolutely. Um, we Are a Masterpiece takes place in the early months of the, what would become the AIDS uh, epidemic, pandemic. Um, and it follows the the story of a nurse named Joan who is decides to go against the social stigmas and norms of the time and really care for the men who are dying of AIDS. Um, and even men who are gay and do not die of AIDS or contract the virus. Um, so we follow her story as she's affected by and impacted by the, the lives of these men, both as they, they live and as they die. Mm. Wow. And and it was, I, I have to say, I know that's that's um, that's a dark description, but it, there's it was just so hopeful as well. Um, Heather, yes. tell us how you became involved with the piece. Well, I met Gina uh, through Crystal Skillman, who was teach. She, Gina was taking a class with, and I knew Crystal. Um, kind of on the periphery, we knew each other. And she invited me to come into the class and do some readings for her class. And I got paired up with Gina on a th- on a play she was writing uh, called... Gina, Super- Gina was writing, right? That Gina was writing. Okay, okay. Called Super, right? It was called Super, right? I'm remembering yeah. that. Um, and we did a couple of scenes from that. And I just was blown away by her writing. Absolutely uh, fell in love with Gina's writing. And... Um, at some point, and I can't remember how much later it was, maybe, it might have even been a year, like it was a little while, um, I invited Gina out for a drink and I, you know, and I said, I sat her down and I said, I love your writing and I have this company and if you ever write something that's retro, please let me know. Um, you know, uh, we have a pretty, a pretty um, specific <laughs> mission statement. Um, so... Most of what she had written that I had read didn't apply, um, but I wanted her to know that I was interested in her writing and that I, and that I, as a producer, um, as an artistic director, um, and that um, if it struck her that there was a story that she wanted to tell that fit with our mission, that I wanted to know about it. Um, and we talked about that off and on. I also had another side project I was working on that I got her involved in that was not Retro Productions. Um, with uh, a filmmaker friend and um, you know, we just, 
we, I think we click a little bit. Like, I think we get each other, you know? And this was, this was, uh, I'll let her tell you how she came to this subject matter, but this was the subject matter she brought me. And I said, let's do it. I mean, I was, that was not, that was kind of a no brainer for me. And I'm continually amazed at how the script, I mean, we worked on it for a year before the production and, uh, you know, I've, a lot of writers, you, the first draft is not that different from the draft you end up with, but that is not the case with Gina. Good. Good. <laughs> At all. Yeah, good. Shocking and wonderful to watch that. Cause it was the like opposite of what I was, you know, of, of most playwrights I've worked with, not all, but most. Um, and it was a hell of a good time too. Wow. Jeez. <laughs> well, I, I think that that's just the mark of a good playwright who's listening, listening and, you know, paying attention during rehearsal. And, and if it's not working, it's got to go. Or if it's not adding or moving the story or, or creating character, then, and then I think, you know, cut, you know, kill the, kill the darlings. I hate saying the other version. It just seems so brutal. <laughs> right. You know what I'm talking about, right? Oh no. I don't know if I do. Kill your babies. Oh. Yeah. I don't know. I just don't think about that. But I'll kill I'll kill a lot of darlings, but maybe it's not. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm sure that you both did quite a bit of research uh as far as writing, uh developing when the play was in rehearsal, things like that. Uh based on your research of the AIDS pandemic for We Are a Masterpiece. Are you, as we go through COVID, are you tracking moments of similarities with COVID-19 as far as, I mean, I remember, I went through it. I'm 55, yeah. so I, I as, and I'm gay, so I, I yeah. that it was just all gay people, but um, I, I, I remember I'm, it too, although uh, I, I'm, I'm only a few years younger than you, but I, I my memories are different, probably, even despite the fact that I was in New York, uh, growing up in New York, um, my parents were, um, they sheltered me pretty well from a lot of that. Um, so even, you know, even though I knew gay people, I didn't necessarily know that I knew gay people. And, um, uh, and, and I certainly, but I certainly remember it more as like a news item, um, the way that probably a lot of people remember it, um, as a news item who weren't in the city and, and also who, maybe didn't have, um, you know, gay population wherever they were. Right. Um, or at least an out gay population. Um, so I, I think, you know, I, I don't, I won't say I'm tracking, uh, similarities, although it, cause there are certainly some, um, but, um, I will say that it has occurred to me that, you know, we've, there's been very little pushback from the theater community on um, staying home and wearing a mask. And I think that, um, and I've said this to other people too, I think there's a reason for that. And it's because we've already lived through one pandemic. We remember, um, and we know that needs, we know what needs to be done to get through this one. So we stay home, you know, and we wear our mask and, um, and we wash our hands religiously um, or whatever needs to be done. Um, And I know a lot of theater people um, and I'm sure so do you both who have um, sort of jumped into volunteering. My mother um, is a professor of costume design and construction. She's retired now, but she has been spending the pandemic 
making masks for a, um, a local food bank to give to a local food bank and, and to neighbors. Um, you know, I know a lot of, uh, especially costumers who are using their sewing skills to make masks and, and other, other things. Um, but, um, I, I think that, I think that there's a reason for that. And I think it's because this is, um, not that far away from us in many ways. And I, I can't help but notice too, um, not to make it political because I don't really want to make it political, but unfortunately it is kind of political, both Republican, um, you know, both times in a, during a Republican um, administration. And, you know, it took Ronald Reagan until 1985 to say the word AIDS. I remember. And it took our current president something like five weeks to say anything to the public about COVID-19, which sounds like overnight when you consider you know, mm-hmm. 78 to 85 or 79 to 85. I think the first case was, which was before they called it AIDS, you know, the first men started dying in the late seventies. Um, but considering that this disease is airborne and that, and that one wasn't um, five weeks is an eternity, you know, and how many lives could have been saved if he would have said something, you know, in a 24 hour period of right. about this disease. I, you know, I, can't help but um, I can't help but think of that particular thing. Oh, it's there. It's there mm-hmm. for sure. Um, Gina, what about you? Are you tracking any similarities between the two pandemics? Oh, yeah, 100%. So I actually, I, I was born in 1987 and did not really, I did not live through the, the AIDS epidemic and any way that I can consciously bring to the top of my mind. So one of the things that, you know, I I did a lot of research for We Are Masterpiece and something that I was really, I really wanted to make it was human because I I feel like when you do something that's so research-based, it can zoom out. Yeah. And one of the things that I was naively shocked by was how close it actually was. So, you know, like when I started writing this play in 2017, for me, the way that AIDS was talked about, the crisis was talked about, it it was so history book and textbook that it, it took me being like, oh, no, wait, this happened yesterday. You know, like for me, to really, and then I got angry because I was like, why is this so textbook? Like why, why I feel like for, you know, people who didn't live through it and, or people who didn't, weren't directly affected by it. It's a textbook to them. And I really wanted to just dive in and make it as human as possible. And also like make it hopeful because I feel like a lot of the texts that are out there that um, beautifully tell stories of that time, like lack the hope. And I think that's partly because they, they were written so urgently because nobody was listening. There was so much like trying to get attention, like uh, people who the artists that wrote and addressed the AIDS crisis were really coming from a different place. Like I'll just, you know, I definitely had a cushion that I didn't live through it. And I wasn't directly impacted by it, but I was still really, I wanted to 
make sure that that humanity is in there so that people can feel it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as we go through COVID-19, I think, you know, a lot of what Heather said definitely resonates a hundred thousand percent. And I also just can't help but notice the similarities and when the administration took notice um, of COVID-19, you know, like it took time, but then also when it turned out and this is going to sound political, but I don't think that like humanity is a political thing inherently, but when it, it became clear that the communities more directly impacted were black and brown communities, there was kind of like a, a brushing aside of it. And I feel like that's what, This is COVID, right? This is COVID, yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. So I think that this current administration, when it was more directly black and brown communities were being impacted, that it was kind of brushed aside again. And I feel like that echoes what the Reagan administration did with the AIDS crisis, where it wasn't, it was people who were gay men and there was such a a stigma that there was just like a neglect there, you know, and it just shows like where priorities are in different administrations. And unfortunately they're strikingly similar and, and the humanity that they don't want to see when it's not directly impacting the people on top or who they perceive to be on top or who have been positioned on top after years of, you know, whiteness, white supremacy in the country they kind of just say like, well, we don't have to deal with it then and try to brush it. But of course you can't brush aside human lives. You can't actually erase people as much as it it would be convenient for them to do so. So again, I understand that's probably a very political statement, but it's not actually, it's just human one. You both can be as political as you like on my show. It's totally (laughs) fine. (laughs) <laughs> you wouldn't be the first. So, you know, f- feel free to say what, whatever, whatever you need to say, please say it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, uh, yeah, I, I feel like there is a lot of government denial. Mm-hmm. So much so that I think we we all started locking down in out here in March, right? In the United States, well, in New York, at least. In February, uh, David and I took a trip to london and um and they were all talking about it there uh we went on like i forget the 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 canals behind cambridge or oxford or the school that we went to and you can take those boat, boat rides the 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 pilot was asking us how are things going over there and we're like we're good we're fine and then i come back or we come back and it's boom and i'm thinking they're so aware of it over here. It's got to be where we are. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of there's a lot of denial and and lack of response. I you know, I I'm not even like a lot of the things that you're saying. I'm just putting together in my mind, and it's it's mind blowing. But you two must have been watching 
TV or listening to the radio and just screaming at it. Like, what are you, what, get off your ass and do something. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Tell tell me about that, Gina. Tell me about a, maybe an instance or overall about how, like, did you have one big freak out and just start yelling at the TV at one point? Multiple times. Okay. <laughs> yelling at the TV is, is, daily happened multiple times well i mean over the last four years for sure well but Uh, even over just the last nine months like uh, you know i mean he's he's like i words fail me I, i i i i find it difficult to talk about well you take a pause gather your words and i'm gonna have Gina, uh, take that on. How about you? <laughs> I'm not sure if there was a specific instance, but something that I constantly go back to is that theater was the first industry to completely shut down. And it's the one that has still not come back. Really? You know, I mean, we I've been doing digital theater and things like that, but in terms of like what theater at its core and essence, like the definition that somebody would pull up, which is, um, you know, a, a live production with an audience sitting in the same space as the production, it just hasn't, there's not even like, there is now a horizon, I will say, at, but it was the first to shut down completely and it's the one that remains closed. And so I think that uh, what Heather was saying too, like theater artists, we immediately, we are all saying, yes, this is what we have to do. Um, but I think that we have like a different type of like awareness of what it is. And we, because our livelihood has been like taken away from us in a really like specific way. And I don't think that, you know, and it is like in comparison to other industries and in comparison to like other economic impact, things like that. Um, it is like a smaller sliver. So I feel like we're often like yelling and being like, this is so messed up. Like this is not like alleviating anytime soon. Like we're still being affected, but there's like a larger louder noise coming from other people who are, you know, they just want to get their lives back to normal, which basically means like they want to like go, go to gyms, go out, do their, have a social life. And of course I can empathize with that. Everybody wants that. But I do think that because theater artists have experienced it in such a specific way, it's, it's just beyond frustrating to see how not only like the administration, well, just to have the administration not be like, just stay home. We're going to like, make sure that you'll be okay economically. And then like, we'll all combat it together. And instead it turns into like a whole thing of, you know, denial, uh, just like lies or, you know, going back and forth on what it is, like all of these things that impact so much. Um, So I, I do often just, that's part of how I've been able, I have been thinking about we are masterpiece a bit because I find I draw the lines every day just because I, I have to, I'm confronted with it. Um, you mentioned denial and I just jotted down the word denial um, uh, about, about 10 minutes into our interview. And um, I feel, I know that there's been like a governmental denial, obviously that's, that's, you know, an ongoing and Twitter and all that. Um, 
but do you do you do you feel that there are similarities tracked between the two pandemics when it comes to social denial and i'm talking about i'm talking about all elements of society because people here in in new york you know uh, yes theater has been shut down and affected a lot of people and it's not cheap to not have a job here and not fun um it's not cheap to live here without a job, I should say. Uh, but do you think that like the same denial that a lot of gay men and gay people had and people with a- AIDS back in the eighties, can you equate that to something oh, like a remember, denial here? Remember how they didn't want to wear, nobody wanted to wear a condom, even though people were saying you have to wear a condom and they're like, no, you can't, you can't make me wear a condom. It's like, it, it's the exact anti-mask argument. You can't make me wear a mask. Mm-hmm. Like it's the thing that's going to save your life. You wear right. a condom so you don't get AIDS. You wear a mask so you don't get COVID or you don't give COVID or you don't give AIDS, right? Like that's the barrier, the condom and the mask. And I, I am, there was a, I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was a meme on social media or if I read it in an article somewhere, I can't remember anymore, but there was something like somebody said something to the effect of, Remember when we didn't even wear seatbelts and how long it took us to get everybody to wear a seatbelt? It's the same thing. The seatbelts, the condoms, the masks. It's why why don't you make this equation and understand how important this mask is? You know, a woman got on the elevator in my apartment building the other day and she was not wearing a mask and she pulled her coat up over her face. And I was like, (laughs) you know, it's not the same thing. And then she explained to me that with her asthma, she couldn't wear a mask. And I was like... You know, I got off, I, you know, I got off the elevator as soon as I could, but like, it's shocking to me that people don't see that that's the same thing. Hmm. The same people who would put their seatbelt on when they get in the car now still won't wear a mask. (laughs) You know, did you want to add anything to that? I think that there's, it's just... I think one of the roots of denial is fear. And I think that one of the reasons we slip into denial is because we don't want to face what's out there, like the fear. And it's easier to pretend like if I don't wear a mask, COVID doesn't exist. Yeah. And I imagine that there might, there must've been some denial. It it must've been, I mean, it, it was such a terrifying time I would imagine the the AIDS crisis being because there was no answers. At least with COVID, we do have answers. We do know how it spreads. Um, with the AIDS, for so long there was there were no answers, and I think that uh, it's easier to deny it being a reality versus facing the reality in some ways. And so that's what I think about a lot when I see people denying it or even people some I I know people who wear their masks like religiously but they still deny that it's that bad they still equate it to the flu because that's the rhetoric that's being pushed by the the administration um and it's just it's easier to not face your fear and I think that's what's really underneath these things like we're not being supported by administrations we're not being told it's going to be okay in concrete ways so it's easier to just pretend like 
it's not a big deal. It's not happening. It's easier to pretend. Um, And we have, we have a president who says it's going, it says it's going to disappear tomorrow and has been saying that for six months. And, you know, most of us know better. Unfortunately, not everybody knows better. Um, A lot of people just choose to believe everything he says. Right. Right. Are we doing anything right this time around based upon comparing uh, the AIDS pandemic and the COVID pandemic? Is there anything that we're, that you can see that, that we're doing right? (laughs) They're thinking, (laughs) I know I I had to think of that myself. I'm like, huh? I mean, I don't know for sure. Um, I think everything feels faster. I think um, I don't know how much of that is technology and how much of that is, you know, we've, you know, it's, 35 plus years later and and we just know more in general like that are that scientists are able to work faster or you know I don't know what that is um but we seem to be moving at a faster clip on this than we did on HIV I don't I don't know um I don't know how much of that is also because I I understand um, you know the SARS was a was a covid I'm not okay. I'm not a I'm not a medical mm-hmm. person. I'm not a scientist. But I think SARS it was, it was also was, yeah. COVID, right? Or a, a coronavirus. A, a coronavirus. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we had a little extra to go on at the beginning because there was you know an understanding there uh, that they were the same virus uh, or similar. Um, so definitely, speed has been on our side compared to HIV. Um, I don't know. I don't know if we've done anything right, though. I don't. I don't know. Gina, I I wonder because again, like my perspective on the this the time period in which like AIDS was at its most highest crisis or the peaks of the crisis um, were times before me. So I wonder if in five years we'll be looking back and being like wow this really like was really bad for the following reasons um I think that my experience of how this pandemic's been handled is just a lot of mush you know like it just feels like mush it feels like there's not been a lot of clarity around what's the best course of actions um or or at least you know there's not like a solid like you everybody should just stay inside and that's like the end of it and wear your mask and wash your hands. And that's the end of it. It seems like there's been a lot of like rhetoric that's been like, but also you don't really have to do that. And like, also it's fine if you like enter into buildings and also do some gatherings and it just, it, I wonder what we're going to look back and see and, and how, where we're going to see the failings even more clearly. Um, So I think that, I don't think that you can call it a success in terms of how it's handled it with the amount of the sheer amount of deaths that have occurred yeah, that have needlessly occurred, particularly in the U S but I don't think that while I know that there are communities like, again, like the theater community at large, like knows and understands and feels the weight of that. I don't know if the larger country, the broader country does or people I, outside of that industry do. 
Yeah, I get I get really frustrated. I get the most frustrated with um, sports and how they're, you know, it seems like they're th- pitching fits and you know insisting on playing games and and you know how is that safe? I don't know how that's possibly safe and and they're allowing it to be done and yet you know the rest the theater community is staying home or when they talk about the hit to the airline industry. You know, the airline industry is not the only industry in the United States that has taken a hit. <laughs> right. It's like, um, I mean, I get it. Yes, airline industry has taken a hit, but so have so many other industries. And so that's when I get the most frustrated. Um, but I do think, um, and when I'm talking about speed, I'm not talking about the speed of our politicians. God, please make sure you understand that what I'm talking about is the speed with which we've uh, seem to have come to a point where there might actually be a vaccine. Mm-hmm. So in nine months, um, as opposed to, um, you know, years and years and years of research being required on HIV AIDS, this has taken nine months. And I have to think that that's because of technology, internet, um, the way we talk to each other now. Um, it's easier to talk, you know, a scientist in France can talk to a scientist in China a lot easier than they could, you know, in 1979. Mm. Do you feel that uh, medical science could have done for AIDS what it's currently doing for COVID-19 as far as treatments and vaccines, like with Operation Warp Speed? Do you, do you think that they could have been a lot faster back then? I think that the people who wanted to solve the problem and to uh, find the cure and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, worked as hard as they could, as fast as they could. I don't think there were enough of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what I would say too. It's it was the the population of people who were most affected were gay men, and they there was there's so much homophobia at the helm at the center of this country that it was I think the support, the fiscal support, as well as the social support, again, from administration down, wasn't there. And I think that that's like a huge, huge, like blight on the soul of the country Mm -hmm. um, is the way that they, they didn't push vaccines and push medical research forward. I don't think that there was just, I don't think there was enough support and I don't think that there was enough encouragement for any scientific advancements, technological advancements to happen at the same warp speed. I think that one of the reasons warp speed is happening is because of the economic impact more than the lives that are being lost. And as I recall it, as I recall it too, some of the, some of the most important sort of pushes forward on AIDS were happening abroad. They weren't happening here, France in particular, um, but, uh, I could be, I could also be misremembering that. So I don't want to, I don't want to make a firm statement, but I think, um, you know, I, I, I think that there's, I think that the people who were trying, were trying really hard. Yeah. They were trying, they were doing the best they could. And I don't want to, I don't want to forget. I, I do happen. I have, uh, in my adult life, uh, uh, met a man who um, is one of the doctors who worked on the very first research paper out of Paris on, on AIDS. And knowing him 
um, and knowing, you know, the work that he has done, his in, he's dedicated his entire life to AIDS. It is his life's work. Um, and knowing that and knowing the people and knowing how he talks about it, knowing how, knowing the people he has met in his lifetime, you know, um, I, I have to think that the people who were working on it were really passionately working on it. They just weren't enough of them to get it done faster. I wanted to, to sort of hark back to what you had said about um, not like everything just feels so confusing. Mm-hmm. And I remember it as a person, I remember it feeling like that then as well. I just remember like everything's changing every day. You can get it from kissing. No, you can't get it from kissing. Um, you know, same thing. Wear, don't wear a mask because we need the mask. Okay. Now you have to wear a mask. It's always, always shifting. I think that that has to lead to it. That has to lead to confusing social messages mm-hmm. anyway. And I mean, do you think that denial of society now is making this worse? And um, do you think it's too late to change that message. And, and again, keep in mind that we're still moving on shifting ground every single day. Um, do they, does society who says, I don't, I don't have to wear a mask. They told me I don't have to wear a mask. I mean, are they, are they responsible to, are they responsible for keeping up with, you know, the thousand COVID reports every day? So I, I personally don't think it's ever too late to change the message. What might be too late is to get people to hear that the message has changed. Um, that's, that's the part that's sort of scary. I think you can always try to change the message, um, whether you succeed or not. You know, I mean, I'm hopeful that come January 20th, we're going to have a really strong message change. Um, we will. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah. I, and I, I, you know, my only concern right now with, with that is the, the situation with the, with the, um, you know, the transfer and, um, you know, all of that not going smoothly. Um, Talk about denial. But we don't have to go into that. (laughs) Really. Um, (laughs) Will, will the next administration be able to change the minds of, um, you know, the, because it kind of feels like Trump believers are a cult. And so they're going to need some major deprogramming. I don't know if we're going to be able to deprogram them fast enough. Mm. Um, I think that they're, um, I think that they just, they, they drank the Mm -hmm. Kool-Aid. Well, I, I think that we're lucky that we're getting them a year or two into this pandemic as to, as to finally getting a president during AIDS and HIV that would actually address it, who I believe it was, it was, I mean, eventually Reagan did something and George H.W., but he, he wasn't great either, but I'm talking about about dad Bush, um, but it wasn't until the Clinton administration and those poor people that you mentioned, they worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and without any support for, for, a decade plus. So I think, I think we're, we're fortunate in that respect that we have somebody coming in early to this. Mm-hmm. Don't, you, don't you think? Yeah, I do. I do think that, you know, the country is severely divided and part of it 
is, you know, Trump was a, a symptom of what was always happening in the country. It was just, he's like a vocal, it, it was this undercurrent that, you know, as New Yorkers, we don't necessarily, we didn't have to contend with um, that, like, were able to like come to the the forefront because Trump gave them permission to be as outspokenly racist as they internally were. Um, and I think that there's a lot of like patriotic rhetoric that is going into the, the reasoning as to why they're not mask wearing, you know, I've seen a lot of like, well, it's my right to not wear a mask yeah. as opposed to like, and they're not saying like, I want, hundreds of thousands of people to die, but they're equating it to a right that they feel is being stripped of them if they do wear a mask. And so I don't know how, I mean, the messaging can be there, but I do think like the the messaging of this patriotic, loud (laughs) overture that's been for the last, especially when talking about this, um, the virus um, this year. Like, I I don't know how easily that's going to be shaken. And especially as the transfer of power is not going as, as peacefully, which I don't think anybody is particularly surprised by, but um, I don't know like what that lasting impact might be on people who really did and, and do believe in what Trump was speaking of is speaking about. Um, So I think that there's a lot of that, wrapped up in what will be what is like the mask where like the messaging that's what i'm trying to say yeah as as you were saying earlier heather it's it's like the condoms back when everyone's they're trying to get everyone to wear a condom oh i'm straight i'm female i i i don't need to wear a condom i'm fine i'm good and it just takes and i think it i think it um i think it was in the film version of the normal heart, which they did on HBO. And I, I'm ashamed to say that I have not read the play version. So I don't know if it's in there, but there's a, or, or maybe I saw it in some other movie. I know I saw a movie. Let's put it that way where there is a scene where there's, where there's, they're talking, you know, there's, it's like a, it's like a GMHC style meeting. You know, it's a, it's an act up style meeting, you know, and, and, you know, the doctor comes in and, and, and this is why I think it was the normal heart. Cause I feel like it was Julia Roberts, but I, <laughs> you know, the, the best thing you can do is wear a condom and all the gay men are like, Oh, you know, no, I can't, oh, no, absolutely not. You know, I, you know, and you know, it, it was just, it was, it wasn't condoms were, you know, yes, they existed and yes, they were used, but they were used with pregnancy. They weren't used, you know, for this particular scenario before, uh, you know, and so um, it's, it's a new thing that people have to get used to. And like, I, you know, I, I wonder what those people who say, you know, it's, 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 uh, the people who say that, you know, it's, it goes against my rights as an American to make me wear a mask. What would they say if, you know, we made it a law, just like wearing a seatbelt is a law? Like, yeah, well, it's your right not to wear your seatbelt. It's also your right to die if you go headfirst into a tree. Like, I don't, <laughs> I feel like it's it's such a similar thing. And I don't understand, listen, I don't love wearing a mask. It's not comfortable. It, I wear glasses. You know, I've been wearing, 
I haven't been wearing contact lenses since all of this because that's yet another another way you can get COVID is through your eyes. So I've been wearing glasses ever since, right? And it fogs up my glasses and I can't see where I'm going. And that stinks. <laughs> but you know what? I still wear the mask. I don't, I, I, the, the mind boggles. People are still resistant to the vaccines as well. Right. Um, I mean, what do you think it's going to take to make everybody do what they're supposed to do based upon any patterns that you've seen with, with comparisons and differences? I mean, I honestly don't know. Um, I, I think that because this virus affects all of the population versus what was perceived with the, the AIDS crisis, which was a, a specific portion of population and also the fact that it's um, a a viral like through droplets versus uh, something that is sexually transmitted. I think like there's more people involved and I do think like I'm honestly not sure what it can possibly take because I even know people who again, like have been wearing masks, but are resistant to even getting the vaccine when it comes out there, but they still think like, Oh, once the vaccine is out and I don't get it, I'll be able to remove my mask and walk around freely. So I think that there's just a a gross misunderstanding of what this virus is and how it can actually be combated. Um, And there's just, there are so there's so many people in the world, which sounds, you know, like silly to say, but also I, there, it's just mind boggling when you think about like how many people are actually in this world. Like how can you get every single person on board? I'm honestly not sure. Mm. Um, but I, I hope that I am hopeful that people will like, you know, can talk to people who might be resistant to vaccines and, you know, masks and, really try to hammer home how it, it, it can affect them. But I do think that if it's not impacting somebody directly in a personal way versus like an economic way, it's just the, I think it's the economic, like the fact that people can't have their livelihoods and can't like make money that angers them into wanting for life to proceed as it did versus like, I wonder the impact of it knowing somebody who was impacted by the virus. I don't know, but I, and I don't wish that on anybody either. Like I, my wish is that everybody does what they're, they should do as backed by science. And, you know, we do combat this, this virus as much as we are able, but I'm not sure. Like, Humanity is as selfish as it can be giving. So I don't know. Yeah. What's really uh, scary is that um, despite the fact that measles, for example, is a completely preventable mm-hmm. disease, we're having a measles spike right now because uh, people are not taking their kids to get vaccinated because they're afraid to take them to the doctor. Mm-hmm. They're afraid that by going to the doctor, they're going to get COVID. Right. Um, or, you know, and I, I think that I haven't, actually seen any numbers on on things like cancer or anything like that but that's probably there's probably going to be similar spikes in other in other completely preventable diseases 
because people are not going for regular checkups because they don't want to leave the house. Right. Which, on the one hand, don't leave the house unless you absolutely have to, but oh, going to the doctor is absolutely have to. Let's talk about how the two of you are coping with COVID-19 as far as is uh, how it's affecting you as artists. Um, Gina, you're the big screen, so you go ahead and start. How are, how are you handling it? Um, so when it, when theater shut down the first few weeks, I was a huge, I was just a mess. I was so, I would cry myself to sleep. I would just, you know, stare into the void of uncertainty and be like, what, what next? Um, the first two months of 2020 were like some of the most robust of my career. And so I really had felt like this year was going to like, shift into a way that I, I had been waiting for. And with the shutdown and there, all this uncertainty, I, I kind of immediately went to despair. Um, and I, but being able to zoom out of the, the hustle of theater has actually freed me to better define for myself what it is I want to do in terms of my storytelling and in terms of theater. Um, and also to see like a horizon beyond the, the now um, it's given me a chance to really think about how long life has the potential to be. And in that, I found a lot of comfort in, you know, there will be a beyond this. And I do, I think that a lot of times I've, I've been hearing like, will theater survive? Will theater survive? And I know that theater is going to survive. I think that when people ask that question, it's more, will the institutions survive? And I'm very much in this space. I've always been like a lover of indie theater as like, I, it's where my heart is. It's where my like home is. And I know that we're still going to make theater because we were already doing barely, you know, being able to do it, but doing it and doing it so well. Mm -hmm. And so I just know that theater is going to return and our heartbeats like will be in that. And I've become less concerned with whether bigger institutional theaters will survive because I'm not sure how well they're, they're serving communities or if they are serving communities that should be served. Um, so I reached a point in the pandemic where I, I like freed myself from that and have just been working on, you know, read, uh, read, being a performer again, being a performer of solo work and being a storyteller in that way. Um, which I feel like I had been stopping myself from doing because I was so concerned about like trying to get plays out into the world. Um, and also, you know, experiment. I wrote a novel and I'm writing as another novel and, you know, just being more than a playwright that wants to get produced by bigger theaters and being more of a, an artist who is creating work that I want to be able to create and tell. Um, and I'm very firmly theater will not be dead because indie theater at, at the least will not let it die. Um, and I know that we'll find new spot spaces to make even better art than before. Um, it survived Greek wars. It survived medieval wars. It survived world exactly. wars. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. Lucky land casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha. In my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me. What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay. Heather, as um, a leader of a production company, what about you? How are, how are you doing? How's Retro Productions doing? Um, so when all of this happened, we were in the process of producing our very first musical for our 15th anniversary season. That I'm re- I'm recalling that that does not like s- seem like news to me. Right, we were well, gonna we were supposed to go into production in May, and so when March thirteenth, I think it was, happened, um, we had cast the show and we had taken some press photos, um, and the next day, I think, two days later, the city went into shutdown. Uh. Um, and so there was a lot of, what do we do? What do we do? Well, if it's only two weeks, we're fine (laughs) because we didn't have any rehearsals scheduled until April. Two weeks, then Um, two months and then six months. Right. And so we, we spent the first two weeks going, uh, wait and see, wait and see, wait and see. Um, and so, uh, then we thought, well, maybe what we'll do is, you know, obviously we can't rehearse the first week of April, so maybe we'll just push off rehearsals and we'll do, um, we'll do more of a, more of a concert version. We'll just do a concert version now. And then that was obviously not going to happen. And so, and so we postponed and said, we'll try to do it in the fall. And then eventually we canceled altogether. Can I take a guess at what I think it was, or would you rather me not say? No, I can, I can tell you what it was. We were going to do you're a good man, Charlie Brown. That's right. Yeah. Um, and we were, I was really looking forward to it. I was very excited about, first of all, the idea of doing a musical because Retro's never done a musical. We've done cabaret nights, but we had not done a muse, a book musical. And I was mm-hmm. really excited about it. Um, and it's a fun musical too. A fun show with great music. And um, we had a spectacular cast. I'm like, I, my mind was blown by some of the people who auditioned for us. And, um, and I, I thought we, you know, we had a concept for our production that was different than anything we had ever seen the show do before. So we were excited to show people that. Um, And maybe we still will someday, but it won't be anytime soon. Right. Mm -hmm. Musicals are very expensive for those people who don't know. It's twice as expensive to do a musical than it is to do a straight play. And at um, the very least, (laughs) we, yeah, at least, I mean, bare minimum. Um, And so what ended up happening was when we finally canceled, we had expenses for things that we had already paid for, like props and costumes that were no longer being used. We had uh, money that had been um, paid in rent for the theater and for rehearsal spaces. Um, We had paid, you know, we had sent a payment into a press rep. We had, um, you know, a couple of different places where, um, you know, we had, we'd already paid for the rights. We had, you know, some of that was refundable, but some of it was not. Yeah. And for example, the royalties, which are way more expensive than a straight play, um, we're, on, we're sitting on my credit card and mm-hmm. that was just accumulating fees and accumulating fees, and accumulating fees. And so we ended up in a bit of a hole. Um, and at first I, um, I thought if we, if we can't, do this show. I don't know if retro productions survives. Um, and it was, um, a really scary and heartbreaking couple of months for a while there. 
Um, however, my, as I mentioned, my mother was making masks for the entire neighborhood. And one of the neighbors started telling the neighborhood, oh, you know, she gave you a mask. She made it by, you know, she made that mask for you for free. My mother wasn't charging for these. She was just giving them away. Uh Um, And she was using, and I had told my mother because I really didn't know if there would ever be a retro production again. I said, use whatever fabric is in the retro stock. Just use it up. We don't, we don't need, we may never need it again. And so she was telling people that she made the masks from the retro stock uh, fabric. And so this neighbor sent an email to all the neighbors in the neighborhood and said, if you got a mask for free from Becky, make a donation to Retro Productions. Oh, that's nice. And so we got this little rush of small donations that helped pay for some of that stuff. And in in that process, I also um, was able to find out that, you know, we haven't totally lost the money we gave to the theater. They will let us use it as a credit as long as we use it within a certain amount of time, which, so that's still a question mark, but hopefully we'll be able to use it within that certain amount of time. Um, same with the, with the um, rehearsal hall. It's sitting there. It's on our account. We can use it whenever we can use it. Um, you know, the royalties, I just, I basically had to say we're, we're canceling production and they paid back the royalties. Um, I still had fees on my credit card though. So, you know, I still had to like kind of deal with all of that and I had to pay for the costumes and the props and all of that. But between that little rush of um, donations and uh, we actually had a yard sale a couple of weeks ago on a gorgeous day and we made bank at the yard sale. I think people were just so happy to have this like sense of like normal like, oh, my God, a yard sale was like a relief to a lot of people. It was kind of wild. Um, so we're actually, um, listen, we're not flush, but we've paid, you know, we're in a position now where I can actually look at the future and go, okay, there'll be at least one more production down the line if we ever get to a point where we can have a production again. We it will. might not be Charlie Brown, but <laughs> we can do something you know, we will be, we'll have to raise more money. We're definitely going to have to raise more money, but at least we're not, you know, in debt right now, which is kind of a huge relief. And the, and the first time that retro hasn't been in debt for at least a little bit of money in years, like there's always sort of been this, you know, two or $300 carryover, sometimes $600 carryover, sometimes a thousand dollar carryover. But, you know, at, at the end of every show, we're always just a little bit shy of having paid everything back. And then we, you know, spend some time fundraising and we make it up and then we fundraise for the, sh- the next show. Um, this is the first time where we're, um, because of all of that accumulated stuff and because we didn't do a show that, you know, we had fundraised for, um, we actually have, a, 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 you know, we're not in debt. We don't owe any money. It's, um, it's a really, it's actually a lovely feeling. Um, it's a bit of a relief. Bet. But <laughs> I was devastated to cancel that show. I cried about it for weeks and sometimes I still do cry about it when I think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what we'll do next when we're able to, you know, um, when we're able to produce again, it, probably will be a straight place simply for the cost factor so that we don't um, have to um, stress the money part as much. Um, We will, um, retro is known for our production value in many ways. And so, you know, we, I don't like to skimp on that part. And I, and I, I think that, um, since that's the thing we're known for and it's the thing I think we do really well, um, I, I don't want to necessarily put a foot into the virtual theater space. I think there are other people who are 
first of all, they've been doing it longer. They do it better. They, you know, why, why would I, um, you know, why would I try to do a virtual production um, at this time? Um, however, we are going to do a reading of something as a fundraiser uh, online, probably in February. I can't make any announcements about that right now because there's no announcements to be made yet. Um, but uh, my idea has, well, there were other ideas and then, but I think the current, the idea I'm going with right now is that there are a lot of um, retro shows that are just simply too big for us. We can't afford them. We can't afford to produce them, but they're wonderful shows. Um, they have 36 characters and they have crazy props and they have, you know, multiple sets and they, you know, we can't do that. We just can't afford it on our budgets, but we could do a reading on a Zoom. Right. <laughs> right. So I'm actually hoping that, um, you know, probably in February, I'm thinking February is a nice cold, no one wants to go outside kind of time where we could do a pay what you will uh, Zoom reading or something. So look for that in the near future. Um, as an artist myself, outside of retro, I have, um, well, I owe a great deal of thanks to my, to my friend, uh, Maz Mendez, who, uh, I am a member of his company. We do, um, just developmental readings every now and then. And it's just, it's just something that, um, gives me a little, well, first of all, something to look forward to, but also just an artistic outlet. Um, and I was very excited to be a part of a, a podcast recording of a play that I had done a couple of years ago. Um, in 2015, I was in this play called The Listeners at the Brick Theater uh, by Matthew Freeman. And he brought the whole, uh, the original cast back together and we did um, a, an audio recording. Um, and that was a lot of fun. And you can, you can hear that now. Um, that's available in places where you listen. Well, I'm going to have you <laughs> tell me where all that is in, in just a second before we wrap up. Um, it, you know, a lot of people are, are going and doing, you know, virtual stuff. And I think it's one of two things is happening. It's either just helping people flex their muscles and not get too out of shape with, but that obviously it's a different style of performing. Um, and then there's a lot of people who are trying things and they're working out really well for them. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've seen people who are, are like a producer, well, not a producer, but a creator and developer of musicals that I just interviewed uh, for CPA Theatricals. He, his business is booming. He creates and develops uh, uh, musicals for, for, for kids, pri primarily uh female actors and he's getting hit up left, right, and center for his projects. So at first he was just like, well, I just kind of want to, you know, and then boom, um, I, I interviewed a, a company called artistic stamp who has a mailing, uh, kind of thing going on. It's, uh, Shelly Butler Hyler and West Hyler. I, their podcast is, um, going to be two before you, but it, it it's amazing. And I've always said, like, it's when our backs are against the wall as artists and we have to get creative that we, that's when the genius ideas come out. How many times have you seen a show and you're thinking, I know this show and I'm singing in a small theater. And I, I know that at one point they have to, to do something and it happens and it's totally different and it's totally cool and bitching. And you're like, Wow, that's because they had to think. 
They, yeah. didn't, they didn't, they couldn't just ride the script. They had to think and, and, and a lot of people are doing that. And it's, to me, that feels really exciting. Yeah. It really, really does. It's, it's, it's cool. Necessity uh, being the mother of invention. Oh yeah, I know. I, I was going to say that, but I'm like, I should probably go a little bit deeper with. Well, I said it for you. You're so wonderful. <laughs> I love that about you. <laughs> um, Heather, you're, you're, you're being a leader and leaders they're, they're, it's, it's when they really, really show their true character and they're tested. And just because you're a leader doesn't mean that you, you can't shut down in the beginning. And, and, you know, I mean, I think everybody did. Um, I have waves of, of, of depression over the whole thing. I mean, who who doesn't like, I, I think that's totally normal in this situation for us all to just, you know, like I, I kind of felt kind of crappy on Sunday over the weekend, like Saturday and Sunday. And so I think I told you this via email, but I just sat on the couch and watched all, all the episodes of the crown. Cause I was like, I don't really want to do anything. I don't, it's, I don't have it's much- so good. It's so good. I have two more episodes <laughs> left. And it was totally <laughs> worth it. But, you know, <laughs> but like, I, I, you know, I, I've definitely had some days like that where I'm like, I don't, I don't feel like doing anything. I know I should do something. I know I should do X, Y, Z, but I don't, I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to run the, I don't want to run the vacuum right now. I, I just mm-hmm. don't, you know, and it's, and I, I think um, we have to take care of ourselves, all of us and be kind to, to mm-hmm. ourselves and each other. Um, yeah. You know, I, um, I, I, I ha- I'm very lucky and very unlucky to be living alone in this time. So on the one hand, I'm not bothering anybody because I'm alone. Nobody cares if I sit on the couch and watch the crown all day. Uh, on the other hand, <laughs> it's a very lonely way to live in a pandemic to not, I mean, I see my neighbor once in a while, but like, I don't, you know, it's not, I don't see anybody on a regular basis. Um, so um, that has been hard as well. And sure. we're, you know, I think, uh, I think it's, I think it's correct to say that um, I'm an introverted extrovert, which, um, you know, is, is one of those phrases that always kind of makes me chuckle. Like I, I'm a, we're theater people are social beings, I think by nature, but I do love to just sit on the couch and watch the crown um, and not be bothered with anybody. Um, but, but at the same time, like, so there've been times during this, I'm like, I, I, you know, I never thought I'd like, like, uh, working from home, for example, my day job went remote, um, on March 13th or whatever it was. Um, and at first I was like, I'm going to hate this. And within, within weeks, I was like, I love this. Welcome to working (laughs) in your pajamas. I mean, I do, I do, I do make myself get dressed in the morning. I don't work in my pajamas, but that's, but that's because I know what I need in order to be motivated to do what I need to do. And that means taking a shower and putting on clothes and putting on shoes because I totally need to wear shoes. You know, it's like, it's a different mindset when I'm, than when I'm wearing my slippers and my pajamas. But at the same time, like, I don't have to worry about, you know. Uh, running into my boss by accident or like, you know, whatever it is. Like I, I kind of discovered that I love working from home, but the problem with that is that I have to make myself leave the building. Okay. Gina, I have to ask, are you totally relating with, with um, getting dressed every day for, are are you in Heather's camp of getting dressed every day to work at home? Or are you in my camp where I have worn nothing but, four other versions of the outfit that I have on right now that you can see. 
Which camp are you? Are you in my camp? Are you Camp Sean or are you Camp Heather when it comes to that? I get fully dressed every day from earrings to shoes. And, you know, I just, for me, it's one of the things I look forward to in the morning is putting together an outfit. And um, that's just like something that I, I also do need, mostly because I enjoy getting into the act of getting into pajamas so much. That's also one of the things I, I just, I need to do that versus like going from pajamas to pajamas. For me, it just wasn't working out. Um, but my husband really does like to wear pajamas every day. So, you know, it's. And I have to say. Right I, on. <laughs> I miss, I miss a lot of my clothes. They're right there in the closet, but I miss them because right. I, when I get dressed for home, it's different than getting dressed to go out. Yeah. I don't, I don't wear the dresses and the skirts and the, you know, like I don't wear, I don't wear that stuff in, at home. I'll do that once every once in a while, I'll put on something that's ridiculous, quote unquote, ridiculous to wear, but it's a global pandemic. So I can wear whatever I want. And so, you know, I'll also have those days too, where I'll just, if I know I'm going to be in my apartment all day and it's like raining, I'll put on like a long, elegant, like a wedding kind of like a, what I would wear to a wedding. Just, just to switch it up. Because there are no rules in terms of, you know, societal rules. I haven't worn a bra the whole year. It's been great. <laughs> One of my coworkers texted me the other day and asked me how I was. I said, great, I put on pants today. Like, not jeans, because I wear a lot of jeans at home. Uh, jeans and sneakers, like, is a typical. Like, I wouldn't wear jeans and sneakers every single day to work. I would wear jeans and sneakers to work on a Friday, for sure. But not Monday through Friday. So, well, for what it's worth, I'm, I'm kind of a slob. So, and I always have been, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a clothes horse gay guy. So, but, but my husband, he, he takes care of all of that. So he, he fulfills that obligation in our couple them. Gina, I wanted, I wanted to tell you that I totally related to what you said about like the first two or three weeks, I was just like, Oh my God, this sucks so bad. And then all of a sudden I, I realized as, as writers, it's, it's a little different. Yeah. Because we're always writing for something that's going to happen, uh, especially playwrights, unless we're writing an assignment like way in the future. Yes. So I'm like, I can finish this and this, and I can enter the contests and yeah. I, can I can take my, my, my podcast and try to get it other places. And um, it's, I'm the same way. I've been like really, really productive over the last six or seven, well, okay, five or six months. I'm yeah. still a slob, so you know. I got... <laughs> yeah, I feel like I, I, in somewhere in August is where it really shifted for me, where I really was just like, I can do whatever I want and I am going to do whatever I want, which is like funny that. I didn't feel that way, even when I, because I had made the shift to freelancing with that intention. But even that, like, I realized how, like, dedicated to the grind and the hustle I was in a way that I don't think was necessarily the healthiest. Um, but I don't think I would have ever realized that if I didn't have the chance to zoom out, like, if I wasn't forced to go through this internal, like, catastrophic thing that turned out to be something 
again, it was when I was able to accept it versus like just dwelling on the, the, oh my God, like I lost this and I lost that and I lost this. When I was able to just accept like, this is the reality that I'm living through. Like theater's not going to come back for like, who knows how long, but this is like the reality. That's when everything started to like shift into bigger things where it was like, okay, so those things are gone, but look at all these other things that can exist. And that, yeah, there was definitely like a shift that happened, which yeah. I'm intrigued by. I told myself, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to come out of this on the other side worse than when I went in. Yeah. I want to come out and I want people to go, whoa, wow, you, you really, you, you've made tracks big time. So that's, that's kind of what, what, what did it for me. And um, so, but, but I was like totally relating to you as a writer. Yeah. I mean, people just don't realize, unless you're a writer, you don't realize how much time, you know, you're, you're not getting paid to sit in your bed and, and type on your computer and stuff, which is pretty much how I do most of my writing. Right. Right. So, um, so it sounds like, like good things have come out of it for both of you, mm-hmm. you know, and Heather, you were, you were able to bring down your debt and sort of refocus things with retro and, 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 uh, it, you know, I, I think that what we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation, the element of hope is there and it's not just there because the doctors are giving it to us. It's because we're figuring out how to do it mm-hmm. and we're putting the hope back in ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that is to me, another major quality of, of being a leader because if you have to be able to lead yourself before you can lead anybody mm-hmm. else. So, and to me, you know, all this sucks, I know, but I, I think that's pretty cool. And I think it's, it's so nice to hear. And it's such a tonic especially when we all just sit in the house all day long. It's so nice to hear other people say, say it, right? <laughs> so that's good. Well, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to let you go because I know it's getting late in our, um, our conversation, but um, I would like for both of you to tell uh, our audience uh, your, uh, your social media. If you have one place they can go to that will send them everywhere else, that's usually best. So Again, Gina, I have you. You're you're the big face on the screen right now, so awesome. Your turn. Um, my website is currently under construction, so I think if you want to reach out, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter, both at the handle at Harry the Houdini. Um, and I yeah. I do love to interact on both of those platforms. So you know, if you reach, if you follow, give me a follow, say hi but I have a lot of my, my COVID stuff that I've been doing is very accessible via those two platforms. Any, any Facebook? Facebook I'm less involved with nowadays. So those are the, the two primary platforms. Um, oh, and if you would like to purchase, we are a masterpiece. It is published, which is very exciting. Um, and that can be done through stage rights. Very cool. That's, that's outstanding. You know, I'm. I, I do most of my stuff stuff on Facebook, and my niece, who's 22 years old, makes fun of me all the time. She's like, "Uncle Sean, come on, you're there. 
they're a dinosaur. And I'm like, I don't have time to learn all these systems. I have, I have things, I have TV to watch. I have 10 episodes of the crown to watch. And then she'll look at me and say, what's the crown? (laughs) I used to be more involved on Facebook, but Instagram is so much more for it. I I can tell better stories on Instagram. I found. So that's really where I like, because I can't, I was like spreading myself between the Trinity of social media is a little bit too much. So one of them had to, it's not completely eradicated, but it is more focused on like the personal life and, um, versus like the professional more of my artistry you can see on the other two platforms okay heather um Save me my, here. my website is heathercunningham.net and that is where you can find all things heather cunningham uh including links to listen to the listeners um which is best listened in the dark with a cocktail um you can also mm-hmm. find out more about retro productions on retroproductions.org Fabulous. That's great. Isn't it great that now we could just consolidate everything? Yeah. And you can get through my you know, social media is all attached to those. So mm. all that well, with me, all you have to do is just go to Facebook. Actually, I'm going to read a list, a giant list of sites where I am now. So um, <laughs> ladies, this has been absolutely delightful. Um, you have taken a very, very difficult, two very, very difficult topics <laughs> And, and, and given us uh, so much insight and so much comparison and, and so, much, so much hope. I'm going to say it again. Um, and and I'm just, I've really had a nice time talking to you both. I would like to add, we're talking about hope. Uh, the gentleman I mentioned earlier that I know who was on the first Paris uh, or French uh, paper, on AIDS. Um, when we did the Baltimore Waltz, the Paula Vogel play, which is, um, as many people do know, it is an allegory on the AIDS crisis. When we did that, he came and did an, a, a little post show talk for us. And he did say that he expects a cure in his lifetime. He is older than we are. Um, obviously if he worked on the first paper, so that, you know, there, and, and we're about to have a vaccine for COVID. So I feel mm-hmm. like it's it, it as as de- as sad and depressing as all of this can be. We just have to remember that we're going to get through it. It's not it's not going to it, it's not going to be us all. We're there are I mean we're going to have immeasurable loss along the way, but we are going to get through it. Right. Right. Well, <clears throat> it's because of people like the two of you who are so excellent and, and and brilliant at what you do and your observations that that the theater community is going to get through it too mm-hmm. and that we will have that other side and retro productions will do charlie brown because i want to see it because i love that show oh my god hopefully <laughs> hopefully <laughs> Yeah, it hopefully will happen. We'll see. We'll see. You make that your new philosophy. <laughs> oh! <Yes>. Thud, right? <laughs> That's how much I like. <laughs> and, and Gina, we'll be seeing so many more of your brilliant, wonderful plays. And you'll be doing, um, you know, your, um, you said you were working on solo performances and things like that. Yeah. Cool. Groovy. And, and I'm, I, we will, we will all be here to see it. We will get through. We will. Thank you so, so much for being with us, Gina and Heather. Uh, You've been amazing guests, and I wish you so many broken legs with your future projects as we navigate our way to a better future for theater.
Well, folks, the proverbial 11 o'clock number has been sung and the vows have been taken, so it's time to lower the curtain. Once again, a big thanks to playwright Gina Femia and artistic director, actor Heather Cunningham. They were awesome. You can find more episodes of Your Program is Your Ticket at Facebook.com, Your Program is Your Ticket. I'm on Twitter at, at Program Ticket. I'm on iTunes, and I'm also on a bunch of new sites. I'm on Stitcher, Player FM, Podcast Addict, Podbean, Pocket Casts, Deezer, TuneIn, iHeart, and Listen Notes. Also, I'm on this great new uh, new website. It's uh, worked out of London. It's called Thespy, and my podcast is on there, and it's been trending at number one. Yay! And a huge, huge thank you to the amazing Broadway Podcast Network, who has honored me with, with a place on their incredible theater podcast platform. Broadway Podcast Network is all about creating an engaging, immersive, user-friendly experience where theater stories of all kinds can be easily found, shared, and enjoyed. Uh, please visit them at my landing page at bpn.fm slash Y-P-I-Y-T. Again, that's bpn.fm slash Y-P-I-Y-T, which stands for your program is your ticket. So, clever, huh? Okay, a quick thanks to North Coast NYC, the hip-hop improv theater ensemble that does my intro and outro music. You might be hearing it right now if my editing is on point here. Folks, take a little time to visit theater websites and see what they have to offer as we transition through and out of this pandemic. Watch their content, give them all great reviews and ratings, and most importantly, donate, donate, donate. That is the the best, fastest thing that you can do for them. They get the money fast, they get it right then and there, and and you can really make a huge difference with the donation. You you don't realize it, but you you can. So everyone do that. Thanks everybody for listening, and until our next show, so long theater people and Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. <laughs>